Hello and a warm welcome to The Gold Podcast. I'm Mark Koskiela and I'm here with my co-host Helena Beer. How are you doing Helena? I'm very well thank you Mark and as we love talking about the weather I'm very happy to be seeing some sun again here in London. Indeed, what a lovely day. I'm equally as happy to be bringing our listeners yet another fantastic episode of the podcast. What have we got coming up this time? Well, I recently had a wonderful discussion with Klaus Legau, Senior Advisor of Social Sustainability at Leo Pharma, which I'm very much looking forward to sharing. But for now, let's kick things off with things you might have missed. So what's been happening in the news this week? Well, as you may have heard, the UK has been experiencing some supply issues in hormone replacement therapies, leading to the UK Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, issuing serious shortage protocols to limit their dispensing to three-month supplies. The ABPI released a statement on the 5th of May welcoming a meeting between the industry and the government on the supply of HRT. Indeed, Richard Talbot, Chief Executive of the ABPI, commented that intelligence sharing to determine demand is absolutely crucial and will allow companies to take action to maintain supply wherever possible. The shortages are primarily affecting estrogel supplies, which around 30,000 women in the UK use. And it also affects a few other forms of HRT too. There's been a lot in the news recently about how women are being affected by these shortages. So it'll be interesting to see how the discussions go and how the industry responds to all of this. Indeed it will. Next, FPA issued a statement last week on the publication of the legislative proposal on the European Health Data Space, or EHDS for short. The proposal includes a legal framework for the use of health data by the industry for the intent of innovation, specifically through artificial intelligence and machine learning. In the statement, FPA's Director General Natalie Moll commented that our industry strongly supports the European Union's efforts to increase citizen and patient control of and access to their health data, while at the same time giving researchers and innovators the opportunity to realise the potential of health data in a trusted and secure way. FPA additionally commented that this legislation is a critical component in ensuring Europe remains an innovator and world leader in developing and manufacturing medicines, which will support faster access to care for patients across the continent. And as for my favourite piece of news I've gathered over the past week or so, a partnership between Sanofi and McLaren Racing has been announced. Mark and I are both F1 fans, so this was some news that we were very interested to report on. That's right. The partnership aims to accelerate manufacturing efficiency and performance in Sanofi's drug development. The two companies carried out a successful pilot in 2021 and 2022 will see the pair extend their collaboration. Indeed, it's hoped that McLaren's data-driven approach and focus on team high performance will enable Sanofi to adopt a race-like mindset, as they put it very nicely, in optimising the pharma giant's manufacturing operations and enable its global network to better support the supply of its pool. Yes, it's not the first time McLaren has used this kind of expertise to support organisations throughout pharma and healthcare more broadly. Now, up next, we have our interview with Klaus Legau, Senior Sustainability Advisor with Leo Pharma. Helena caught up with Klaus last week to discuss what he thinks are the most important facets of a social sustainability strategy and his advice for those starting out in policy campaigning. Yes, and we also spoke about where he thinks pharma is falling short on social sustainability, as well as his transition from not-for-profits to corporate pharma. Let's have a listen. 
Klaus, hi, lovely to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, uh, Helena, and thank you for inviting me to the podcast here today. So you're currently Senior Advisor for Social Sustainability at Leo Pharma. Your career is quite a diverse and accomplished one, covering lots of different therapy areas such as HIV and stroke, but also public affairs. Um, Can you tell our listeners about your background and a bit about the journey you've taken to get where you are today? My formal background, just for a quick overview, so I have a background uh, in human nutrition, in uh, journalism and in uh, communications uh, from different institutions. And then, uh, which is in itself a bit varied and and, uh, and diverse, and maybe that is sort of, you know, an indication of of my choices, but, but because I have never as such been, you know, a very straight arrow when it comes to career planning. So it's for me, it has been very much about pursuing opportunity, uh, but mostly, you know, in towards uh, positions where I found, you know, the content of, of the function uh, motivational uh, and relevant. And and sometimes these opportunities, they they arise by sheer coincidence. And actually this this current job happened at a, at a conference, uh, you know, all sorts of things can happen at, at uh, conferences. So uh, this uh, opportunity uh, came from, from meeting a good uh, former uh, partner uh, of mine from, from an earlier occupation. So, uh, so that is uh, basically the, the way and the, the bendy road that has taken me to where I am today. That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've um, interviewed someone else recently who had got a job based on a, a chance encounter. So I think it's uh, <laughs> yeah quite more common than we'd expect it to yeah. be. Um, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so you lead Leo Pharma's program for enabling health as mm. part of the company's corporate sustainability strategy. And I think you've got quite a rich background in social sustainability work. So broadly speaking, what do you think are the most important facets of a social sustainability strategy for um, for companies for for pharma companies in particular mm. I think it's it's really important to to sort of uh, look beyond uh, the, the the beautiful narrative and the marketing exercises I think it's really important uh, uh, in the current circumstances with uh, current challenges, trends, asks and demands from from our external environment that we are able to provide concrete proof points of our impact uh, as a a sector and also uh, showing our performance according to specifically set targets and uh, as to what you want to obtain in providing, you know, more health uh, for the general population and helping sustaining healthcare systems in societies as well. So, so I think that is really important that we address these issues and uh, sh- and show our value contribution as companies and do it in a concrete fashion. That's great. Thank you. And yeah, I like that look beyond the narrative statement you said there. That was mm really good. Um, What would you say was your main reason for wanting to pursue a career in patient advocacy and engagement? I think that's that's been another line of work that you've had over the years. 
I think it's um, I think as as a as a person I'm I'm fairly idealistic uh, and I I do really want to when I'm doing things I want to to help change things for the better basically and I think also you know looking to uh, there are obviously some very important disease areas out there but I have also been sort of attracted to 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 areas uh, which aren't as popular as uh, for instance oncology which is you know a, a, an ever hot topic in in the disease area for instance so so i think it's really you know it's it's sort of the ability to be able to to assist in in helping making change and then also to look beyond uh, you know where are the unmet needs where's the burdens of disease particularly amongst the overlooked populations for instance when i worked in in uh, hiv aids you know i had a, a keen interest in in uh, for instance how hiv was a problem south of sahara uh, for particularly young Young women, it uh, how the epidemic is growing in the Eastern Europe because you know people aren't acknowledged as people with uh, with these needs. So you know it's it's really there's something in there that uh, gives me an extra uh, in in to do my job basically. Yeah, farmers are great opportunity for making making a difference. Um, I think healthcare is is one of those kind of foundations, um, isn't it, in terms of making a difference. Yeah. Um, it's, its impact is so wide reaching. That's brilliant. So uh, we've kind of touched on there, you've got a long and diverse background in, in patient advocacy, and you've spent many years working within not-for-profits, and you've been um, CEO at, I think it's four, am I right in saying, uh, yeah. not-for-profit <laughs> companies? Um, and yeah, as you touched on there, these have been kind of aimed at bettering health and public awareness of specific patient groups or or health environmental issues. Um, so I guess I'm just really interested to hear from you as um, a leader um, at those companies, what did you find was a kind of a constant? What what kind of mm. issues or or concepts were you were you seeing um, across the board there? Mm. I think, and particularly, or probably in 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 most contexts, but I think really in when you are in a civil society context, in an NGO context, your your role is always to be an advocate for the cause you are representing, and you always, in any circumstance, you have to be ready to become a representative for this organization and for the topics and the issues you are uh, heading off. And I mm -hmm. think also what is maybe particularly in the civil society sector is that the teams you lead are very often for the major part of, of the staff members, they are in there for a reason. They often represent the issue area you are, you are working within. So I think, you know, those two are sort of some quite unique features uh, when working in in uh, NGO uh, organizations uh, representing specific disease areas, for instance. That's great. Do you think the um, like having uh, representatives who are directly affected by those conditions adds a kind of particular 
benefit to the way that you work and having that kind of expertise is that something that you really look for it i think it is i think it it shouldn't be sort of you know uh, a, a, a sort of you know it's something you have to uh, this criteria you need to be representing necessarily the the issue area you're working within but i do think in the dialogue if you have the professional patient advocate you know both being able to 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 juggle the advocacy part but at the same time being a representative for the specific issues relating to to a disease area you know that is a really really strong combination so i don't think you necessarily need to have that always but i do think you need those representatives in there in the mix uh, uh, as a diverse organization i think that would be fair to say well we need at least to have some somebody knowing this either by being a close relative or maybe even representing the disease area yourself yeah that's great yeah it's kind of getting that good balance isn't it between yeah. all the different different aspects it is i think is part of the di- and, and maybe it's you know diversity in a workplace at such you know it's it's always you know age gender uh, ethnical bi- background whatever you know uh, things of life you know I, I think we need to be in there all of us Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of moving on slightly from that question, mm. looking at it in a, a little bit of a different angle. Obviously, mm. you mentioned that there was that kind of advocacy role that was um, a constant. But was there something um, that either a specific example from one of them or something more generally that you learnt um, from those roles? I think especially in uh, in those roles one factor is that what you do is always very tightly or even connectly directly connected to 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 both what people can access in healthcare, but also to how people can access healthcare and healthcare services so i think there's a really close connection between what you do and the outcome and the outputs uh, for for the people you are representing it's it's quite a short and direct uh, connection and i think that is that is something that is um i think more emphasized working in in uh, in the civil society sector um so you moved from uh, not for profits to a role in the pharmaceutical industry mm. um so having spent such a long time in um a different sector did you have any preconceived ideas about what working for corporate pharma might be like and do you think you were pleasantly surprised were you proved right were you proved wrong um what's your kind of um overall feeling yeah it's it's funny actually i think when you ask me this question is is right i think i got actually more reactions from people surrounding me since i've been working in civil society for for so long and with that experience because obviously working in disease areas as i did uh, you have actually a long time mutual Valuable uh, uh, collaboration with uh, the pharma sector. So you know, I sort of knew this sector from the outside already. So you know, I wasn't estranged from it or worried or anything. Also, I think, th- and that was one of the claims. You know, some people who say, "Klaus, you are turning to the dark side." Is and no, no. <laughs> well, having leading, having been leading, you know, NGO uh, or organizations. Uh, people think that has nothing to do with uh, com- uh, commercial business, but I can tell you, 
being in an NGO, you really have to look at the bottom line of, of every financial year because you know that is the reason why you can actually uh, uh, execute on your on your mission and your vision as an NGO. So that wasn't either a big problem for me or any problem at all to think commercially. What I think one of the uh, some of the new learnings I do uh, get and and did get from from starting in the pharma industry was that seeing this collaboration and to some extent uh, the, the the shared interest, the partnership with, the, for instance, the patient side is how much and how big the importance is of keeping your arm's length distance. You know, compliance issues are super important. That is one thing, I think. And then also going from, obviously, I, I worked on national level in, in the civil society sector, but I worked in international networks. But this moved to a, a global uh, Danish company and having the global perspective. It's also really interesting to see how differently the sector, the pharma sector is being perceived and how differently the framework for our operations are uh, uh, when we reach out to other stakeholders like patients, like uh, clinicians uh, and other uh, public stakeholders in, in, in healthcare systems. So those are the key learnings uh, for me when I, when I made the change here uh, near enough four years ago now. Yeah, lovely. Thank you for that really in-depth explanation. That was brilliant. So policy campaigning, I think, can feel like a bit of an overwhelming task and, and people might struggle to know where to begin. Mm. But personally, you've had um, positive and successful experiences within this space. I think we've discussed one example um, previously back in 2016 when you initiated a campaign for publicly funded HPV vaccination for young men, which then became an integrated health health service in, in Denmark in uh, 2019. So a brilliant, brilliant achievement there. But based on that experience, where do you think someone should begin with, with policy campaigning? And what do you think are the most important steps and, and considerations that they should focus on? I think one thing is obviously really to to know what is it you actually want to obtain? What is the change you want to, to, to make and make clear why this is the most important issues ever. So I think that is really necessary to start your, your sort of reflection on that and involve people in that. And then obviously the, the classical approaches of mapping your, your stakeholders, building your arguments on data and actually referred back to one of your earlier questions, Helena, I think both building your arguments on data, but also on lived life experience. So involving uh, uh, people who can actually represent uh, the issue you are addressing and want to make a change within. So those things are important. And then the example you referred to, obviously, it's not on my mantle alone to, to have achieved all of this because one thing here is super important is to create alliances within obviously your your immediate issue area but also to reach out to people who are beyond that who might be able to you know sort of help in parallel and can share your your political agenda uh, on these things and then co-create the effort together with these alliance partners and then classic project management you know keep tracks of of uh, keep track of how things are developing adjusting and then as always, as, as also the time frame you uh, alluded to indicates, you know, be patient. This 
doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes things, you know, the, the, the things I wanted to change, I think maybe if it's one or two percent, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say, well, we made a change here. So you just have to be patient. Things take time and often years. Uh, and in the end, you might be lucky and get your achievement through, but not always. But, um, but I think those are my learnings from, from my experience till now. That's really interesting. Thank you. Yeah. And it's great to hear about those kind of relationships and alliances. I think that's something that's that's come up a lot in, in lots of the interviews that we've done recently is yeah. the importance of that kind of collaboration and, and really yeah, making strong relationships within the industry. That's brilliant. And I think I and actually yes, I agree, Helena, on that because alliances, you know, it's 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 across sectors, it's within sectors, also because you know the strain on public health healthcare systems currently in the world, basically, you know, uh, it's really difficult unless it's oncology or, or something like that, but it's really difficult to come with single disease perspectives. You need to create this wider, broader perspective on, on uh, approaching these areas, I think. Yeah, brilliant. That's great insight there. Thank you. And um, just out of interest, what's the um, reception been like for that service since its inception? Um, did it manage to kind of avoid the negative effects of COVID? Because I think it was it was launched just before COVID um, really took hold. So what's yes. been the, <laughs> what's been the, um, it's the, a, the impact? It's interesting, actually, the, the uptake hasn't been uh, as big uh, because I think it was uh, given as a part of the annual fiscal budget uh, for for the healthcare system in Denmark and but it alongside it you know it's it, the communication of it is basically left for GP level to communicate to the users of of uh, general practitioners so but i think something like this really works it's you know it's it's young parents or younger parents with young boys pre-teen boys uh, so it, it works a lot in social media of sharing the information and the need for for becoming uh, vaccinated uh, against hpv so i i'm sorry to say but i do have lost track of of the statistics of this since i've changed uh, uh, my work but, but, uh, but <laughs> so but but i do know all the decisions were made all the funding for it was uh, decided before all this uh, other uh, unpleasantries uh, hit the fan back then so one final question from an industry-wide perspective where do you think pharma is falling short on social sustainability are there any steps they need to take to make more progress in that space Mm. I think, I, and maybe I would start in the, in the other direction, sort of, because I think really that things do move in a in a positive direction currently, due to the trends and the needs in in society. For instance, you know the the, the now the realization of the connection between climate and health is you know is really it's 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 becoming more and more acknowledged. Uh, we can also see you know there's a really uh, increase in demands from legislatures for instance, in, um, in the EU and in combination with that also from capital markets of companies uh, providing to, to shareholders uh, data on, on their performance in this area. For instance, you can see like, super large institutional investors like BlackRock is really prioritizing things like this. So, so I think, you know, 
uh, and also, sorry for rambling here, but also you can see the recent actually referring to the pandemic, COVID-19 pandemic, you can really see there's a, a recent super positive experience of private public partnerships in providing vaccination programs for 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 near enough the global population super quickly as well so i think actually there are some really really good movements and you can see in the pharma sector some pharma companies are quite advanced in their reporting also standards for accounting your your sustainability efforts in the social field is becoming more and more consolidated i think here within the next few years but that aside, I do think that we saw the need for change we do need to see is a more, uh, in relation to that, a more sort of substantial and a systematic set of standards for reporting on the sector's super and very big contribution to society beyond the drug. For instance, how you know our research planning is contributing value to society, how reporting the data from trials, how we improve patients' quality beyond the treatment, for instance, looking to social determinants of health, um, to, to keep people's ability to maintain a career or remain in their workplace. So I think this, you know, is something that I think we we do need to see a change within, but also at the same time, actually, I do see that movement now and getting closer and closer to something more substantial. Plus, and talking about that, one thing is the demand to the pharma sector for, for disclosing these data in a systemic and standardized way. But then at the, on the other side, I think what needs to change is to look to how do policymakers receive these data? Because uh, looking to, for instance, to HTA processes, you know, is a really narrow scope of what sort of data uh, you should provide to obtain a reimbursement of, of relevant products. So you also, you know, one thing is what you report on, but there need to be a system who can sort of appreciate and use those data you're reporting as a sector at the same time. So I think that combination we need to see as well. Brilliant. That's fascinating. Thank you for that really, really in-depth um, explanation and, and nice to pick up on the positives as well. <laughs> um, so thank you so much, Klaus. It's been fascinating to hear your thoughts on social sustainability and, and lots of other topics there. So thank you so much for your time and for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was great to get Klaus's take on the social sustainability landscape within pharma. I also enjoyed hearing about his key takeaways from leading four not-for-profit organisations before he moved into the pharma space. I thought so too. It was great to chat with Klaus, but that does unfortunately bring us to the end of today's episode. Thank you once again to Klaus for joining us and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from if you haven't done so already. And don't worry, we'll be back next week for another brilliant episode. Indeed we will. See you then.